0: It's Carcon Carne, let's eat in the car, it's Carcon Carne,
1: and now here's the star of our show, James Van Osdell. Carcon Carne, still stuck here at home, it is Carcon Carne in quarantine. I'm James Van Osdell, and the show is sponsored by C&H Financial Services. Business owners, if you're trying to find your way forward during all this, CNH Financial Services is here to help. They offer a variety of products ranging from traditional merchant accounts to a zero cost payment processing solution, which eliminates the expense associated with accepting Visa, MasterCard, Discover and American Express as a form of customer payment. C&H Financial Financial Services eTap Solutions easy to set up for your business for online ordering and curbside pickup. C&H also offers cost-effective commercial lending programs which can help get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, contact C&H Financial Services at 855-600-2437 or go to chfs.us. So I'm at home. I, I work in this space 12 hours a day. I never actually leave here, such as life under quarantine. But for tonight, I thought it was important to put on a button-down shirt because I'm talking to an author. I'm talking to someone, someone intelligent and literary tonight. My guest tonight, John Sternfeld. His new book, his fantastic new book is Unprepared, America in the Time of Coronavirus. It is essentially an oral history of what we've lived through since late last year, day by day uh, told by everyone who had something to say about it in the moment. We, we hear from politicians, we hear from columnists, we hear from scientists. The most interesting thing about this is you've removed yourself from this process. You've just framed the story with other people's words.
0: Yeah. And it, and it lends itself to that because who the hell am I to tell them? (laughs) Uh, It's okay. people ask why you, I say, I don't know, but But yeah, the idea was to uh, sort of imitate the radio on the mantelpiece of six months through the pandemic, what we heard, what people said, and uh, create a sort of virtual reality where when you read the book, it's like you're reliving those six months. That was the idea behind it.
1: Well, and it's interesting. In the very beginning of the book, uh, in the introduction from Timothy Egan, who is a Pulitzer prize winning author and columnist yeah. he wrote, there is no master narrative in this tale. It is us in a tangle of contradiction, the leaders and followers, the experts and the crackpots told without comment. And in the, in the end of the book, you say the most damning evidence is always just people's words. It's, in summary, that's it. You, you, you let everyone speak for themselves and it's, it, I'll tell you what, I read this book and I had to pause several times throughout reading it. I got stressed out. I got anxious. It's all so fresh and reading all this. I got, I got my hackles up. I got, I got pissed off reading your book.
0: Sure. I I think we're all angry. Um, I think from the perspective of October, it's also very frustrating to see that the same arguments that we were having in February and March, we are having having now. So in March, uh, Anthony Fauci made one sparse comment about how masks might be best for health workers. That was the one comment Fauci made on it. And since then, the president has decided to turn that one comment into a, we don't know if masks are good or bad. So it's extremely frustrating to read the book and see us repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again.
1: The craziest thing I I think I experienced while reading this book is that in this nonstop information deluge that we're living in, that we're exposed to, I'd already long since forgotten some of the circumstances, quotes, and moments from the past several months. As I'm reading through all this, I'm like, oh, right, that person said this, or, oh, right, that happened. It's crazy to take a 30,000-foot view of something that I just lived through and rediscover everything. It's just a bananas news cycle that we're in.
0: Exactly. I think without the kind of news cycle, a book that told an oral history from six months ago would sound kind of absurd as an idea, but it is. There's a fire hose of information this year. It's impossible to sort through. And my editor, uh, Anton Mueller, who came up with the idea, he thought it would be nice to just see people's words side by side. The original idea was, let's look at Cuomo and Gavin Newsom and President Trump, and let's look at the different styles of leadership. And from that idea, the book evolved because it became like Each day, let's sit down, or I sat down at the end of the day. Who said what when? Was it true? Was it not true? Did it lead to anything? Did it come from anything? So there's almost something kind of uh, mathematical about putting it together. But Tim is right. When it's done, there is no master narrative. There's just 320 million Americans making their individual choices that all lead to where we are. So I think of the book as something of um, somebody compared it to World War Z, I guess, which is a a zombie apocalypse story told in oral history. But I mean, the fact that that's the comparison point for this book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Well, I mean, the book starts out like to, to that point starts out like a dystopian or apocalyptic thriller. The spoiler is it's real life, but from the get go, there's a WeChat text from a Chinese doctor telling his colleagues. Yeah. There's a thing that happened an outbreak in an open air market in Wuhan. That's how it starts. And I swear to God, I've seen this movie before and it did not end well at all.
0: No, and unfortunately, Dr. Li Wenliang, uh, whose, whose words opened the book, he was actually arrested in China for, for even sending out little notices, and the Chinese government had to apologize uh, because he was uh, one of the first to see it, one of the first to report about it, and then he got it, and he died in early February. So his right. story ends before the first part of the book is even over, which is uh, upsetting, and it also lays the groundwork for the virus to travel. It, it operates pretty quickly.
1: And, and again, uh, if you're just joining us, it is Unprepared, America in the Time of Coronavirus. Uh, that right there is John Sternfeld. And I mentioned all the different personality types that compose this this narrative. The inclusion of scientists and academics is critically important. If this was just a book of politician quotes, it'd be 350 pages of misdirection and horseshit. <laughs>
0: That's exactly why we couldn't do it. Because at first it was like, all right, I can't just choose politicians that I like. That doesn't mean anything. So I included a bunch of people I necessarily didn't agree with politically. And I said to my editor, this is like a book of lies now. What do we do? And that was sort of the 1.0 version. And then once we dropped in the COVID tracking project and the Johns Hopkins tally and journalists. And I tried to avoid too many opinion journalists. When the journalists come in, they are reporting factual stories or data. But without that baseline, the book doesn't make sense. And fortunately, that allowed the book to grow into what it it became.
1: Let's talk for a second about journalism. In the beginning of the book, you say that this is not objective in the classic and, as you believe, outdated journalistic sense. Explain what you mean by that.
0: I think there is a tendency in our environment to mistake objective with giving both sides of a situation. So I'm not the first person to say this, but it's like saying, um, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo says the sky is blue. Meanwhile, President Trump says it's green and leaving it for the reader to decide. Uh, That is both sides journalism. It's absolutely deadly. It's gotten us to where we are. So I didn't want to present every single um, positive note from everybody so it's objective in the sense that this is actually what certain governors were pushing forward like the governor of georgia who disastrously decided to open his state early that was what he did i I didn't try to you know attack him from a liberal point of view i showed what he was so i tried to present what was obviously the narratives at hand uh dr fauci was very open about the facts uh dr deborah burks i'm sorry to say just wasn't and she um missed an opportunity when she really had the president's ear to put forth a kind of common sense, pro-science view. Now, in August, Dr. Burke spoke out, spoke out, but it was far too late. So I tried to be honest and objective, but I did pull all the political affiliations from the book. So every governor, senator, congressman, you will not find Democrat or Republican. Uh, and I tried to keep that out of it because it was not my intention to present to political sides at all.
1: I I like that approach very much. Let's talk about the construction of the book. You said this was your editor's idea. Yes. Were you writing everything in the moment or were you playing catch up on quotes and comments days later? Were you just were you glued in front of TV and Internet all day long, just kind of piecing this together like a puzzle?
0: Uh, it's a great question. So my editor called me, I want to say like early April. So in the beginning, I was going through transcripts from the first few months, but eventually we I caught up to myself. So around, let's say May 10th, I was organizing everything up to that day. And then I would sit down with the day's news, you know, sometime at like, sometimes at midnight, sometimes the next morning and say, okay, what the hell happened yesterday? And I would go through you know, various news sites, but also I would I would glance at every governor and mayor of note and what they said and what stood out. So it got to the point where I was reporting this in real time. And it was actually kind of a, like a clarifying activity. There was something, people said, oh, didn't you go crazy? I said, yeah, I went a little crazy, but it also allowed me to settle with the news at the end of each day. Uh, when I was finishing up the draft, it was Memorial Day weekend uh, when George Floyd was murdered and then the protest came out. And uh, it seemed pretty obvious with the protests that this was the climax of the book, that this was not a separate story, but the culmination of people frustrated with their government, communities of color angry about being ignored. Um, So it became sort of a natural climax. So that's why the book ends, I think, after the second week of the George Floyd protests. And it ends on very much a note where I'm not an idiot. I knew that COVID would be around when the book came out. So I presented uh, President Trump's very optimistic view on June 5th. That's the last day of the book. And then I interspersed what was actually going on. It was spiking down south. It was spiking the Midwest. Hospitals were filling up again uh, because it didn't take a rocket scientist to know that the summer was going to be really bad. And so that's where we were.
1: And here we are recording this on October 20th. And yeah, things look things look rough right now. You break everything down into five phases, which... On paper, this makes this is a very clear way to, to look at what we've experienced so far. The first one is The Arrival. This really does seem like a series of movies right here. The okay. Arrival from <laughs> the end of December through the end of January. The Emergency, end of January through mid-March, when we all were told, yeah, you're going to be working from home for a little bit. The Lockdown, March 15th through mid-April. The Opening. As you mentioned, Georgia, uh, April 20th, 420 uh, through May 24th. And then what you just mentioned with George Floyd, the reckoning, uh, May 25th through June 5th. It is interesting when you break it all down like that, how very logically this can be segmented because there were distinct stages in the moment. You don't even feel it. But looking back, oh, yeah, there were very clearly designated periods throughout this pandemic.
0: Sure, and that was brought in after the fact. It came out through a conversation with my editor when we were done, that was there a way to sort of segment it for the reader? Obviously, while it was happening, you know, the most interesting part of the lockdown is, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, but like the kids came home from school and then they stayed home for a long weekend and then it was a long spring break. It never felt like a lockdown. It was like all of a sudden I looked up and my kids had been home for four weeks. But (laughs) in June, when I looked back, it was like, oh yeah, that was the lockdown period. And then the opening opens with, like you said, on April 20th, the governor of Georgia is like, our numbers are looking good. Let's reopen. And obviously it was way too early for that. So the reopening, the opening, I wanted to call the reopening uh, because it was this sort of economically driven um, lie. You know, let's just say it was an economically driven lie that led to a really bad spike over Memorial Day you know, as we remember, and then the numbers just kept going from there. So uh, but yeah, the idea of segmenting, it came from, you know, I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller. And it seemed to make sense to give the reader moments to, uh, to sit with it, rather than it's like, here's a massive six months of information.
1: As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, this is something I want to make sure I set aside. So that my 14 year old daughter, who you know, went through that, that period of, uh, okay, it's going to be a couple more weeks. Okay. We're, we're here through me. So that she has everything framed contextually. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, no, I need to reread this again too. Like this is, this is the proverbial first draft of history right here. You did it. it was this when the editor, when your editor brought it to you, did you think this is too much for me? This is, this, this is a weighty thing for me to tackle I'm not sure. Or were you like, yeah, I'm all in. Let's get this done. It
0: just At the time, to be honest, it just seemed like a cool idea. We were living through a very bizarre time. I'm not a journalist. I have no journalist background. So the idea of being able to write on something that was unfolding, uh, it seemed really interesting. I think as the book started coming out, I did feel like who the hell am I to tell this story, but then I fall back on, you know, I am basically designing, uh, I'm designing an oral history for you to, Uh, relive the incident. It's not like my commentary is on it. So I tried to ignore that, but I like that we were able to get something out that, like you said, it's not just a historical document. I think at first it was the idea as it would be for future generations, but even when I read through it again, like I had to do an interview last week, I I quickly just read through the book again, and it's amazing the things I forget or the things that seem relevant now, um, even to, to people who lived through it.
1: One, one of the nice things or benefits, I guess, of this book that I really appreciate as a consumer of books and entertainment and media is that publishing, book publishing can be immediate. It, the world doesn't revolve around what you see on the internet. You, you can put something out there that is vital and timely in hardcover and have it mean something. I think there was a perception for a while that current event books are outdated by the time they hit the shelves. Not the case. And I just, I find that refreshing.
0: Yeah. And I have to give a complete credit to everybody at Bloomsbury who uh, anyone who knows anything about the publishing process, it does not usually take three months. I mean, they all put their time in because they knew the book had to be out in the fall. Right. And I and there are going to be a lot of really interesting histories written that come out next year that give a fuller view. Like I say, the author's note, you know, I didn't interview hospital workers and morgue workers and all the frontline people who obviously their story needs to be told, that will be done for next year. You'll see that. But the idea of being able to capture something in a moment, a snapshot, uh, is totally due to, to their work in, in getting it out on time. I actually had a feeling um, that, I had a feeling that um, what was going on in June was gonna kind of hover until September, right? I think there was some worry like, oh no, what if things change very quickly? And I think anybody who's been involved in the material and reading what's going on with this virus, Uh, it didn't surprise me that by late September when the book came out, everything was like the same, but worse, right? Like the death count on uh, the day I ended was 108,000. It's literally double that right now as we talk. So um, it did seem strange for a book to attempt that. And that in itself made it kind of like a cool maverick move that I was into. Totally.
1: So having spent the past several months working on this and, and immersing yourself in all the facts about the pandemic, Do you emerge from this process more cynical? Is there there hopefulness in your attitude looking forward? Where are you emotionally after doing this?
0: It's a great question. I think all the the talk about the book has been where Trump was wrong and where people opened too early. There are a lot of heroic stories in this book. Uh, There are governors like Governor Inslee who, who very early decided to take a leadership role in Washington. There are health directors like Amy Acton in Ohio who was talking to the viewers, the citizens of Ohio, like they were her classroom. And I really sort of fell in love with those people who were able to break through the harshness of the moment. Governor Whitmer, who's in the news right now because some horrible people are trying to to kidnap her. She was on top of this before there was a single case in Michigan. She was having... Uh, meetings, uh, so there's more than enough heroic stories. It is interspliced though with people who used their power for uh, for selfish reasons. You know, there was no real science behind the reopening. The reopening was totally motivated by economics and by an intention on our president and his White House to create the story that things were okay. And I think the tragedy in this is we did not least need to lose this many people. There are obviously some deaths that are medical deaths, but a gigantic portion of these deaths are political deaths. Um, And that part makes me not only cynical, but sort of horrified, right? As terrible as this virus has been, the idea that certain choices could have been made um, that would have at least just spread the right message, right? Social distance, wear a mask, don't eat indoors. Uh, Had people done that in March and April, we would have gotten ahead of it. Had there been a national plan, even if we were kind of slow, if we got one going in May, uh, we still don't have a national plan. So this uh, I try to reiterate was not a natural disaster, right? This was a man-made disaster uh, uh, made worse each and every day.
1: You might say we were unprepared, <laughs>
0: exactly. right?
1: <laughs> so obviously there's no ending to this story. Um, the world keeps turning the pandemic rolls on. Have you talked about following this up? I mean, I I don't know what the follow-up to unprepared would be. Good night, nurse. (laughs) Uh, Oh shit. Uh, Relapse.
0: There has been, there's been, you know, the book has to sell enough to, to, to justify a volume two. But I think that the second I ended Uh, writing the book. I couldn't stop bookmarking stories. I actually still do it instinctively on my computer as I work on other things, because with the election coming, we have another reckoning coming, right? So I foresee another story building up to the moment where we decide who's going to lead us out of this. Uh, But the volume two is mostly an economic decision, but I would love to do something like that. Yeah.
1: Well, this book, it's astonishing to me how much I learned and relearned Things I, I, I'd forgotten that happened months ago is crazy. This is a, a comprehensive book. And as mentioned, it is, I, I love the fact that you don't have the political affiliations throughout. I think that really makes this more readable because it, 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 you don't think about motive. Everything's just kind of laid bare for us to interpret.
0: Right. And I always found it weird that, you know, and I'm not some kind of uber nonpartisan idealist, but it is weird that you always mark the state and the party, anytime someone's speaking, they can be speaking about education or healthcare or anything. And it like has to be known what party there. I've in. always thought that. Yeah, it seems strange. <laughs> I don't know where it comes from. And it's uh, it felt like for this particularly important to leave out the the party affiliation. There were plenty of Republican governors who were ahead of the virus, who were on top of things. And I tried to highlight them like Mike uh, DeWine in Ohio, uh, your governor Pritzker in Illinois, um, is a Democrat. I'm sorry. Okay. And then uh, Hogan was a Republican of Maryland who, you know, they got a lot of bad PR, but they cared about their citizens' health and they kept with it. So um, I tried to highlight some of those Republican governors. The third one was, oh, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. So they were out there.
1: They were. All right. John Sternfeld, I, I, this is a fantastic book. It doesn't get more timely or topical than this. Uh, great job with this.
0: Great. Thanks for having me on, James. This was great.